This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Edward Hirsch, editor of the poetry collection, A Hundred Poems to Break Your Heart. I believe in poetry more than almost anyone, but I don't believe that poetry, for example, gives us back the people that we've lost. We've all suffered tremendous griefs, and I think poetry helps us, but it doesn't restore those people. It gives us something. We'll be back with Edward Hirsch in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved. Time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is Edward Hirsch, a celebrated poet and peerless advocate for poetry. 
His first collection of poems for the Sleepwalkers received the Delmore Schwartz Memorial Award from New York University. His second collection, Wild Gratitude, won the National Book Critics Award. Since then, he has published eight additional poetry collections and five prose books on poetry, including A Poet's Glossary and How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry. He is currently the president of the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation. His newest work is called A Hundred Poems to Break Your Heart. For the book, Hirsch selected a hundred poems from the 19th century to the present and illuminated them, unpacking context and references to help the reader fully experience the depth of emotion and wisdom in the poems. Each poem is accompanied by a short essay combining biography and commentary. We began the interview with Edward Hirsch sharing what about poetry lights his soul on fire. You know, I, I, I began writing poetry as a teenager the way pretty much everyone does. You, you have feelings that you don't understand that are overwhelming you. Um, I just continued to persist in this error. That is, I was so overwhelmed by what I was feeling that I decided to start writing. It would really be generous to call what I was writing poetry, but I felt better when I did it. And, um, and it seemed to, the intensity of, of the feelings that I had, the uncontrollable feelings I had, seemed to find some kind of shape when I wrote them down. But I didn't really know about poetry. I was just writing. But then when I went to college, um, I showed my poems to one of my freshman teachers, my freshman humanities teacher. And she did a remarkable thing for me. She basically said, you could be a poet. You have the intensity. You have the imagination. Um, and you have the intelligence. But what you're writing are not poems. You're just writing down your feelings. You're not reading anything. You're not trying to write, shape anything. You're not trying to make anything. And if you really wanted to do that, you really have to start reading poetry. And I started reading poetry and I just couldn't stop. I just thought this answers something in me. It wasn't academic. It was just this answers something in me that I've been looking for gave me some kind of home for my feelings. And I found that other people had articulated my feelings better than I had done. And when I found that, I thought, well, I want to do something like that. And I started imitating them. And that set me on my path towards trying to write poetry in the line of other poets. This collection, A Hundred Poems to Break Your Heart, what was it that that drew you to heartbreaking poems. One of the things you you write in the introduction was that poets have always celebrated grief as one of our strongest human emotions, one of our signature feelings. We are enlarged by grief. And it seems like we've been in a lot of grief as a world lately. What drew you to this this topic? I felt that I began to feel that American culture was somewhat immature in its relationship to sorrow and grief. And that because I had suffered great sorrow myself, I discovered that people are very uncomfortable with it. They, they sympathize with you. They, I mean, they feel bad for you and they really want to help you and they really want you to get over it as quickly as possible. And so they want to divide it into groups, into stages, five stages, be done with it. And 
everyone who suffers a great loss, and that's pretty much everyone um, at a certain age, discovers that it just doesn't go away like that. It's not that easy. But the comfort, the culture is so uncomfortable with it that people are driven underground. They start hiding their feelings. They start going to groups because no one can understand except other people that have that have suffered. And I feel poets have not felt that way about it. The poets are quite open about their griefs and have written about them quite explicitly. And I feel that people can 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 gain something and can recognize their own feelings in the courage the poets have shown in not only confronting their own feelings, but in turning them into something beautiful. Because a poem is not just a record of one's feelings, it's also a made thing. I mean, the oldest word for poetry in Greece, in Greek is poesis, which means making. And a poet is a maker and a poem is a made thing. And here we have a hundred examples of poems that have moved me that are written under extreme circumstances of great sorrow and suffering. But someone has also taken great care to try and turn it into something that's been made, something that can communicate to someone else. And I felt that these poems have spoken to me and that they could speak to other people. And then I wanted to present them, but I also feel that people can use a little help sometimes in understanding them, in getting the biographical and the historical and the literary context. And that reading these poems um, in some kind of critical way can help people understand them more, deep, more deeply, even though they respond to them personally. I'm curious about your upbringing because you you said when you were a teenager you had all these feelings and you didn't know what to do with them and you're talking about heartbreak and sorrow in a way that we you know admittedly as a western culture haven't been able to deal with very well but I'm also wondering if you grew up with any sort of religious or spiritual tradition that was meant to help you with all of this or you you were more independent-minded or or just searching for something different? I grew up in a secular Jewish family. I wouldn't say there was any spirituality at all. There were, there was a lot, there were a lot of feelings around. Um, and I think my family did identify as Jewish, but I couldn't tell that anyone believed in anything that I could tell very much. And it was, it was a pretty materialistic middle-class background where I grew up in Chicago, outside Chicago. Um, so I don't, I can't say, I mean, I think I got things from the people around me, but I don't think it was a spiritual life. It sounds like your approach to poetry, though, is very spiritual or that there's, there's something that it gives you that's almost like religion. That is true. That, that is, that's very observant by you. But what I would say is that, um, I mean, there is religious poetry explicitly, like the Psalms and the hymns. Um, but I would say the difference between religion and poetry, they both have a sacred air. But I would say that religion is some kind of authorized testimony. It comes with some kind of doctrine, creed and church, whereas poetry does not that poetry is unauthorized testimony. That is, it is a spiritual testimony of an individual to his or her own experience. And so people are testifying to something and, and, and longing for something and questing for something. Um, but it isn't necessarily 
within the confines of a creed. I mean, sometimes it is. There are explicitly Catholic poets and there are Protestant poets and there are Buddhist poets and there, there are all, all kinds of religious poets, but there are also poets who are eccentrics, um, who have a spiritual quest, but it doesn't quite fit within the doctrine of any, any, any one religion. And that's why I'm calling it unauthorized. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's it's almost like I sense this devotion in you towards poetry. Like you use the word sacred, that you find it very sacred. Poetry began in religious ritual in its origins. And it it it, it it's always bears some kind of sacred air or longing or testifying, even if it's only to the sacredness of what's passing or past. Doesn't necessarily mean transcendence. It doesn't necessarily mean poetry about God, but I do think it has the kind of, it is a sense of the sacredness of individual life. Aside from heartbreak, were you looking for any other qualities in the hundred poems that you chose? Very much so. That is, um, first of all, heartbreak is not a single thing. Um, And also, I'm very aware that they're all different kinds of heartbreak. Um, there's there's the loss of a child or a parent, but there's and there's a broken heart and love, um, but there's also the, a tribal loss or you know a political loss. There are all kinds of things that people mourn for. Um, so I would say that I was looking for different kinds of grief that represent different kinds of grief, and I was writing about poems that had been meaningful to me, but also I'm writing about, I guess poems that seem to speak to me as poems that are well-made and that I have something to say about that, it, that, that, that seems meaningful. So I would say that what's distinguishing, in my opinion, about the way I try to write about poems is that they are literary texts, but they're also human documents. And that I try to write about these poems in a way that's meaningful, that tells you something about them as literary texts and how they operate as texts, how metaphor works, how the forms work, why the lineation matters, whether or not their stanzas, all the various devices of poetry. But at the same time, I'm trying to keep in mind that a human being wrote this poem for a very specific reason and often out of a great sorrow or trauma. And that it seems that too often in writing about poems or thinking about poems, people forget the person who wrote it or why they wrote it. And it seems to me that people don't just write poems because they're games or because they wanna fool around. That people are trying to articulate something um, meaningful out of something traumatic that has happened to them. So I guess the, the the trauma of the grief of a different of different sorts has to be articulated in different ways um, as poems. And then part of my mission has always been to say that American poetry is in conversation with other poetries, not just English poetry, but poetry from around the world. And I've tried to include poems from the 19th and 20th century from other countries as well. One of the things that also interests me about poetry that we can talk about is I'm also curious about the role of the imagination and fiction 
um, to some extent in poetry. And what I mean by that, for example, is um, I'm wondering if we can talk about Barton Spring by Tony Hoagland. It's a poem that he he starts off talking about the cancer that he has, but he he doesn't have cancer. He had talked to a friend who had cancer and he was, it was like an act of empathy and imagination. And so sometimes we read poetry and we think it's, it's literal and it's not. So I wanted to ask you about fiction and it, it, like the fictional element to that. And then we can talk about the poem. Emily Dickinson says in a letter about her poems, when I say I, it is not me, but a supposed person a representative of the verse. So what I would say about this is it is Emily Dickinson and it is not. That Emily Dickinson has what I would call a theatrical persona. Now, there are poems by, say, Robert Browning that are dramatic monologues where the speaker in the poem is completely made up and is entirely different than Robert Browning. But then there are poems by, say, Robert Lowell or Sylvia Plath or Anne Sexton, where it's a little more complicated because the, the, the speaker has cannibalized their own lives and refers to many things in their own experience and yet also creates an element of the theatrical or the fictive as the speaker. So I would say in a Sylvia Plath poem about her father, who did die when she was eight years old, the speaker is Sylvia Plath and it is not. And that it is a supposed person related to, I know this sounds complicated, but it's a supposed person related to Sylvia Plath, but not her exactly. And there are things, all kinds of things that are made up in her poems that are intermingled with things that are not made up that are true. In Robert Lowell's poetry, he tried to give the feeling that you were getting the real Robert Lowell, but that's a fiction. You were not getting the real Robert Lowell. You were getting a construct based on the real Robert Lowell. And so I would say that there's a kind of movement between how close the speaker in the poem identifies with the poet or the poet identifies with the speaker, but it's always an element of the fictive coming into play. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more. I don't think it always makes a lot of sense to speak about the fiction in this when someone is writing about, say, the loss of his own child. It, it, it is a construction, but I don't think it makes much sense to pretend that in the poem Surprised by Joy, Wordsworth is constructing an entirely fictitious speaker. And that when he turns to turn to his daughter, He's turning to an entirely fictitious person. I don't think that quite makes sense. When, when John Clare is writing from a mental hospital and writes, I am, yet what I am, none cares or knows. My friends forsake me like a memory lost. I am the self-consumer of my woes. There is a bit of the theatrical eye there, but he is writing about a person confined in the mental hospital the way he is. Um, and so I, I'd say that there's, there's always some element, there's certainly an element of imagination in every good poem. Whether the speaker is close or far away from the person's autobiographical or biographical self, 
depends on the poem. But you are right to point out that it's never exactly the same. That's why I, in the introduction to this book, I try to make a clear distinction as best I can, as you probably know, between the poet and the speaker, so that we know that they're not exactly the same. And, you know, the hope is with all of this poetry and, um, you know, if it's good poetry, hopefully that's, it's true that you're writing about what it means to be human. And that's, that, that is true. I'd say that most poets would tell you that even when they're writing out of their own autobiographical experience, they sometimes change some of the facts to get to something that they believe is truer. But you're right that in the poem Barton Springs, as I say, I had assumed, because Tony Hoagland did get cancer and did end up dying from cancer, I had assumed that this was one of his own cancer poems and then discovered that in fact, it was when he discovered the cancer of his friend, Jason Schinder, um, who he had also taken swimming. And it was on that trip to go swimming in Barton Springs that he discovered that Jason Schinder had cancer and he was gonna write about it. But if you remember in the poem, he does say, when I get my allotted share of cancer. Yeah, he does. So so Barton Springs is this this pool outside of of, of Austin, Texas. And he, he begins, it's, it's a little bit of a long poem, but so we can read the beginning and talk about it a little, but he says, Oh life, how I loved your cold spring mornings of putting my stuff in the green gym bag and crossing wet grass to the Southeast gate to push my crumpled dollar through the slot. When I get my allotted case of cancer, let me swim 10 more times at Barton Springs in the outdoor pool at 6am in the cold water with the geezers and the jocks. And he kind of goes on to talk about his um, chemotherapeutic weight loss and to let the cancer be kind so he'll have more time to swim. And he talks about the light and the breeze and um, how joyful things are near the water. It's a wonderful poem. And it, it keeps you know changing its tone between something very grand and something quotidian or funny. Um, but the tone of it basically is life is terrible. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna die. But before that happens, let's get in some swimming. I mean, there is a sort of playfulness about this, which is also true. And what's really moving about the poem, um, and I'll just reread the last stanza because you refer to it, but I think it makes the case beautifully. In documents elsewhere, I have already recorded my complaints in some painstaking detail. Now, because all things are joyful near water, there just might be time to catch up on praise. Now, that is so beautiful to me, but also it shows that the poetry of lamentation and the poetry of joy and praise are not as far away as people might think. First of all, in every poetry, in every, first of all, every poet, every culture has a poet. That's not just because some bohemian people like you and me like it. Poetry must carry some kind of information that matters to people in every culture. And in every culture that I know of that has poetry, there are at least two kinds of poems. One is a poetry of great grief, and the other is a poetry of great joy a poetry of lamentation, and a poetry of praise. 
And the reason I think they're related to each other is the poetry of lamentation is lamenting the fact that we are mortal and will die and the time is passing and that we lose people and that we, ease, we wanna ease their passage into the other world. The poetry of ecstasy and joy and praise is also a poetry where the time is passing and the world is transient and it wants to celebrate what we have right now. So these are two sides of the same thing, in my opinion. And Tony Hoagland brings it together wonderfully in this poem um, that is aware of our mortality, but also goes, there's something joyful near water, as, in a, as if it's in a hymn. Um, and the poem ends on such a marvelous note of praise. And that this was instructive to me because it suggests that the poetry of grief and the poetry of praise are not so far apart as one might think. I think I first learned about that and understood that dichotomy actually of life, like the transient nature and how much joy we get from it in it also in a poetry class in college on a John Keats poem. And it was Ode to a Nightingale. Yes. Oh, what a poem. Yeah. I read that in college and it was like, that was when that truth about life struck me that at that moment you're feeling the absolute most joy and perfection and beauty is when you also feel the transience of it the most. Thou art not made for death, immortal bird. I mean, absolutely. The exquisiteness of the, of the nightingale's cry, which by the way, he tries to imitate in that poem. So that sounds like a nightingale, the exquisiteness of that cry makes death seem like, how is it possible that something so poignant, so beautiful could die? And this was the inspiration for Wallace Stevens, by the way, who said, death is the mother of beauty. And I think that's what you're, you're referring to, is like, this is so poignant that the discovery that this thing is so beautiful that it's gonna die is almost unbearably exquisite. It's sad and also it's beautiful. Well, there was a moment for me in Mary Oliver's poem, Lead, where it turned sublime for me. She's my favorite poet, and I had never read this poem before by her. And it's it's so exquisite, but there's a, a moment there. So this is about the loons that are coming to um, the shoreline, maybe near her house, and they're dying. And she doesn't know what they're dying from. And it's not that long. Should we read the whole poem? That would be wonderful. Do you want to read it? Sure. Lead. Here is a story to break your heart. Are you willing? This winter, the loons came to our harbor and died, one by one, of nothing we could see. A friend told me of one on the shore that lifted its head and opened the elegant beak and cried out, in the long, sweet savoring of its life, which, if you have heard it, you know is a sacred thing, and for which, if you have not heard it, you had better hurry to where they still sing, and believe me, tell no one just where that is. The next morning, this loon, speckled and iridescent and with a plan to fly home to some hidden lake, was dead on the shore. I tell you this to break your heart. <laughs> See, I'm crying. I tell you this to break your heart. 
by which I mean only that it break open and never close again to the rest of the world. She even tells you what she's going to do. Says, here's a story to break your heart. And you go, oh, really? Come on. And then it turns out it does break your heart. But I think what you're talking about is what in the Italian poems they call the volta or turn. And I think here you're talking about the moment. If, I'm, if, I, if I get this right, what you're talking about is I tell you this to break your heart. Is that where you're finding the conclusion that's so moving? Well, that is that is kind of the lift off of that. But the moment where I actually take flight is when she says that it break open and never close again. Well, that's what I mean. This is the lift off. Yeah. Um, this is I mean, what I'm saying is the turn takes place here. And I tell you this to break your heart, which comes back from the beginning. But now there's a change. And that we think we've been reading a story just about the loons, which is sad enough, and the death of the loons. But now she's imploring us to not just recognize the death of the loons, but to recognize the death of other beings. And that she's asking us that we be aware, that we open our hearts to the suffering of other creatures in the world. And that our hearts have to stay open. I mean, when when I read this poem, because I also like Mary Oliver's poems, maybe not quite as much as you do, but I really do like them terrifically. But when I read this poem, I go, this poem is for my book. I mean, this I have a book called A Hundred Poems to Break Your Heart. This is the poem. And it makes the case that I'm telling you this particular story to break your heart, but why? so that you will be aware not just of your own suffering or the suffering of the loon you've lost, but so that you will be open to the suffering of others. And that that's why she's telling us this story about the loon. I mean, I think it's a remarkable instruction and the lift off there is incredible. And the end of the poem is sublime, that it's taken the poem. And I think what you're talking about in both the Hoagland poem and in this poem is it hits another register. And I think that's where you're referring to poems being sacred. And that what's happening is the level of speech is changing from something ordinary to something more elevated. Because only the intensity of the poem can capture the elevation or intensity of the feeling. And the machinery of the poem operates for that kind of liftoff. I mean, I'm still, I still am all teared up and it's amazing to me what poets do, at least in our language, with with 26 letters and some commas. It's absolutely stunning. Sometimes I'm in despair about it. Um, Other times I'm in ecstasy about it. You can't believe that some words on a printed page can lift off in this kind of way. This is a pretty simple poem. I mean, it's not there's not a word in it that you wouldn't understand. And the lines are pretty short and she's telling you what she's going to do. Um, and yet the poem has such remarkable liftoff that you never forget it. And it tells you something, not just about poetry, but about life. And I think that's what you and I are responding to that. This poem is imploring us it's, it's, it's forcing us to look at the suffering of others, and she's telling it to us 
so that it, our hearts will break open and be open to the suffering of others. I mean, what could be more meaningful at this time of, of, of our history? It's so Buddhist. What do you mean? Just uh, Buddhist is so much. Buddhism is so much talking about suffering and trying to have compassion for the suffering of others and to relieve the suffering of others. I completely, I completely agree about that. Um, you just mentioned earlier that sometimes you're in despair about about it. Um, after I'd said it's amazing what people do with twenty six letters and some commas, what's the despair about? Well, I mean, we do have language to give us back the world, but it doesn't always, it gives us back something, but there's always a gap between the word and the thing. I, I don't think there's any poet who hasn't felt that poems can't quite deliver life in, in the way that we want. I mean, it, look, I'm the greatest, I, I believe in poetry more than almost anyone, but I don't believe that poetry, for example, gives us back the people that we've lost. We've all suffered tremendous griefs, and I think poetry helps us, but it doesn't restore those people. It gives us something. So sometimes I despair at the inability of poetry to actually do what no, no art form could possibly do, which is help us recover from the, from, from the deaths. Because no, once we lose people, we have all kinds of consolations for ourselves, and we tell ourselves all kinds of stories, and they are with us, but we have lost something. And, and even poetry, as much as I believe in it, does not give us those people back. Yeah, I mean, one of the poems that is so powerful in that way that it's about a loss, but it's, it's, it's also about a very shared loss, a loss to hate, a loss to um, our belief maybe in our, our fellow uh, humans is Jasper, Texas, 1998. Yeah, that's an incredibly harrowing poem by, Elizabeth, by, by Lucille Clifton. Um, and it's, a, it, you know, there's, there's a, unfortunately in American poetry, there are fortunately for poetry, but unfortunately for life, that there's a long history of, of lynching poems by African American poets, um, because lynching is a kind of racist spectacle in, the, in, in, in American history. And poets have tried to respond to this. And this poem, this short poem by Lucille Clifton is an, a remarkable example of a lynching poem. And it is, it, is, it is a torment, but it is a great poem too. So it's, it's about um, when James Byrd Jr. was dragged behind a car in, in Jasper, Texas, and she separates it. So it's Jasper with a bunch of spaces, Texas with some spaces, 1998, and then it says for Jay Bird. And she doesn't capitalize any of the words. And she has a few places where there's big spaces between the lines. So it starts, I'm a man's head hunched in the road. I was chosen to speak by the members of my body. And then there's a space. The arm, as it pulled away, pointed toward me. The hand opened once and was gone. Why and why and why? Should I call a white man brother? Who is the human in this place? The thing that is dragged or the dragger? What does my daughter say? The sun is a blister overhead. If I were alive, I could not beat it. The townsfolk sing we shall overcome. 
while hope bleeds slowly from my mouth into the dirt that covers us all. I am done with this dust. I am done. So she's writing it from his point of view and his body's point of view. This is the most extraordinary thing about the poem is that she catapults herself into his point of view as if she's Orpheus singing from, from you know, I am a head, just a head. Um, but of course, Orpheus was a mythological person and she's writing about a real person that she's read about and who's been killed by three white supremacists who dragged him behind a car. So this was the guts of the poem as a poem was to catapult herself into this point of view. And then in my writing about it, I go, a man's head hunched in the road. I'm a man's head hunched in the road. I was chosen to speak by the members of my body. And I go, that's one of the most amazing enjambments in modern American poetry. Because when you go, I was chosen to speak by the members, you think she's gonna be talking about the members of a congregation the members of a group, but then it's so devastating because it's the members of my body that he's literally been dismembered and the arm is it pulled away and the hand are still trying to point and still trying to be part of the body. And then there's this somewhat rhetorical question, which is very large and grand, but you know, we're still living with it now. Why and why and why should I call a white man brother? It's a very good question. And she doesn't name the draggers, um, but there's a question there is who's more human? And we know it's the one who's been dragged. And she says this, what does my daughter say? This is a person who was killed who has a daughter. I mean, this is a real human being. It's not some fiction that's been made up. One of the things that's striking about this poem in the end is it's very inconsolable. I mean, you would think, as a, as a person of radical hopefulness and one of my favorite poets, Lucille Clifton was a poet of real uplift. Um, but here, she doesn't want people to think that singing We Shall Overcome is gonna be enough. It's not enough for James Byrd. It's not enough for his family that someone was murdered here who will not be restored. And I think it's worth remembering that given how much this has continued to happen in American culture, to our great shock and, 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 and appalling response to, the, to what, what's happened in America, that this keeps on happening, it is important that these figures who take on historical significance, we also remember they were people and that they lost their lives here. And that's what Clifton is, I think, trying to remind us, that someone is done and someone, is, someone has died. It's a real act of tremendous empathy to press herself into his point of view of his dis literally his dismembered body. Yeah. And I think as the reader, it, it doesn't provide, nor should it, any, any comfort in the way that maybe Mary Oliver was telling us to open our heart to people or... Tony Hoagland found this hope in this, in the, in the beautiful transcendence of things. This poem just makes you sit with the horror and, and that's all it should be doing. I think there are times when, you don't, when poetry should not console you. And this poem is inconsolable. But I, I think that given the systemic racism and th that we're facing in our country, 
And given the brutality of the cruelty of murdering people, it's important that we don't just take some easy answers and responses and talk about healing too soon for people that have been murdered. And I think Lucille Clifton is very much reacting against that idea that now we can march and it's all going to be okay that we shall overcome. It's not okay for the people that were murdered and that this is a memorial of just one of those people. If you could sit down with a poet that's no longer with us anymore and chat about their poetry, who would it be and why? I would really like to sit down with John Keats because I consider him the most lovable person in the history of English literature. And, and I have a crush on him, um, just like I have a crush on Frank O'Hara. Like you wanna be at a party with, the, with them. And, and so um, when John Keats says, I would like to be amongst the English poets after my death, he does imagine a supper where they sit down together. And so there are a lot of writers in the history of literature that I would not like to meet that much. Like, I don't think, I, I love Tolstoy, but I'm not that eager to have dinner with him. I just feel I'm gonna get a lecture. Um, but I, I don't feel that that would be the case if I were sitting down with, if I, if I, if I were sitting down with, 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 with John Keats or Frank O'Hara. I, I like to take a walk with Frank O'Hara. That would be a great, that would be a great joy. It'd be nice to bop around New York City with him. I have a few more poems that we can talk about, but I'm wondering if there's one that you really want to talk about the most. I'm completely open, but I'm very fond of the Stanley Kunitz poem, Haley's Comet. That is the page my book is open to right now. Should I read it? I would love you to if you think there's time. Sure, let's do it. Haley's Comet. Miss Murphy in first grade wrote its name in chalk across the board and told us it was roaring down the storm tracks of the Milky Way at frightful speed, and if it wandered off its course and smashed into the earth, there'd be no school tomorrow. A red-bearded preacher from the hills with a wild look in his eyes stood in the public square at the playground's edge, proclaiming he was sent by God to save every one of us, even the little children. Repent, ye sinners, he shouted, waving his hand-lettered sign. At supper, I felt sad to think that it was probably the last meal I'd share with my mother and my sisters, but I felt excited too and scarcely touched my plate. So mother scolded me and sent me early to my room. The whole family is asleep, except for me. They never heard me steal into the stairwell hall and climb the ladder to the fresh night air. Look for me, father, on the roof of the red brick building at the foot of Green Street. That's where we live, you know, on the top floor. I'm the boy in the white flannel gown sprawled on this coarse gravel bed, searching the starry sky waiting for the world to end. I, I really adore this poem, I have to say. Stanley Kunitz was an old man when he wrote it, but he, he, he throws himself back into his childhood self to remember when Haley's Comet was about to hit. And, and some of it is very funny to me where he goes, you know, where the teacher goes, if a comet hits and the world's destroyed, there won't be school tomorrow. You notice that the language kind of gravitates to the view of a first grader. 
The perceptions are not, but the language gets pretty simple the way that a first grader might describe things. And so it's kind of moving towards that. Um, Elizabeth Bishop does very much the same thing in a poem of hers called In the Waiting Room, which is a marvelous poem where um, she's in the, in the dentist's office at a waiting room and she's almost seven years old. And then she says, I could read. It's the sort of thing that a seven-year-old would say. And that's how you get that here. One of the things about this poem as a poem that you might miss when you first hear it is the whole thing is in the past tense where he goes, Miss Murphy in first grade wrote its name in chalk across the board and told us it was roaring down the storm tracks. And then two thirds of the way through the poem, it turns and changes. And he goes, the whole family's asleep except for me. And suddenly you're in the present tense. And I think the thing I find so moving here is he tells us how he, that the family didn't hear him and he steals upstairs. Um, but basically Stanley Kunitz's father committed suicide before he was born. And so he never knew him, um, but he's always looking for him. In another one of his poems, The Portrait, I tell the story of this in the book, in, a, in another one of the poems called The Portrait, he tells the story of coming down, finding a portrait of a, of a stranger with a mustache and bringing it down to his mother, showing it to her. And she takes it from his hands, rips it up and slaps him across the face. And he goes, I'm 64 years old, but I can still feel the burn of the sting of that slap. Here, we get a picture of a boy, of a man catapulting himself back to a boy. And you have the kind of magical thinking of a boy going out on the roof saying, I'm here, father. And then he, the reason it's magical thinking is he goes, well, his father, they've moved and his father won't know where they live now. So he has to tell him, well, father, you know, look for me on the roof at the foot of Green Street. That's where we live now because we didn't used to live there. And so you won't be able to find me if you go to our old house. And then the portrait of him, I'm the boy in the white flannel gown sprawled on this coarse gravel bed, searched the starry, starry sky, waiting for the world to end. I mean, this is the liftoff you're talking about in other poems where you have here, but here it's the eternal portrait of someone forever remembering that he was a boy and he's wearing this old fashioned nightgown and he's on the coarse gravel and he's looking for his father who he'll never find on a day when the world felt like it was gonna end. And it's just per permanently engraved into your mind. And it's so he starts with, and I think this is what we're responding to in a lot of these poems. They begin with a kind of story, but they end in a kind of sacred space that feels as if you're in a religious devotion. Yeah, I think that moment where it says, look for me, father on the roof was the turn. Yeah. The Volta. You're on it. You <laughs> see? <laughs> I really was struck by uh, Sharon Old's poem. Well, I love that poem too. Do you want to talk about that? Um, sure. Okay. Okay. Um, so speaking of fathers. Yeah. Speaking of fathers, <laughs> exactly. Sharon Olds wrote this poem, The Race, that has so much momentum to it. It's pretty long. So I don't know if, if we should read the whole thing. 
But it starts off when I got to the airport, I rushed up to the desk, bought a ticket. Ten minutes later, they told me the flight was canceled. The doctors had said my father would not live through the night and the flight was canceled. And then it goes on where a young man told her that another airline had a nonstop leaving in seven minutes. So she takes us right with her as she's running through the airport, the Pan Am terminal, which lets us know it was a while ago that she you have that sense of of almost like watching a, a, a thriller or like an adventure movie where you're just not sure if she's going to make it. And she's kind of, you feel her sweating and she's um, just trying so hard to get on this plane for this very, very important moment. And then at the end she writes, uh, she gets on the plane. I walked down the aisle toward my father. The jet was full and people's hair was shining they were smiling. The interior of the plane was filled with a mist of gold endorphin light. I wept as people weep when they enter heaven. In massive relief, we lifted up gently from one tip of the continent and did not stop until we sat down lightly on the other edge. I walked into his room and watched his chest rise slowly and sink again all night. I watched him breathe. That's the race. This is a remarkable poem, and I think you've captured something of it. It's it's both very quotidian and, and very much beyond the quotidian. Um, we know what's at stake. The flight's been canceled. She might not ever see her father again if she doesn't get this other flight. And then with great detail and poise, she tells us about everything that she does on the way. It's very cinematic. You could film it. I think you're right about that. As she goes through the airport and then makes it just as they're closing the door. And I think here, we've seen in a lot of these poems, there's a kind of linguistic liftoff. And here you get it again, too, from the moment that you say, I walk down the aisle. Now, normally one would say, I walk down the aisle toward my seat. She says, I walk down the aisle toward my father. And we all know what she means by that, because this reminds us what this all is all about. And then she goes, the jet was full and people's hair was shining. They were smiling. The interior of the plane was filled with a mist of gold endorphin light. So again, she's describing it both as it is, but under the sign of something heavenly. And she then goes on to say, I wept as people weep when they enter heaven. And that's funny too, because the, the plane is taking off and literally entering the heavens. Um, and then all I'd say about this is the way that poems work is sometimes surprising. So she's described in great detail how she's run through the airport in New York to get to this cross-country flight to get to California. And then she goes, and, you know, we lift it up, and I'd not stop until we sat down lightly on the other side. She doesn't say, I got off the plane. She doesn't say, I ran through the other airport. She doesn't say, I got a taxi and went to the hospital. She goes directly to, I walked into his room and watched his chest rise slowly and sink again all night. I watched him breathe. And that's, I think, the moment that's so heartbreaking because you know she has made it. She has gone to see her father breathing, but clearly he's not going to be breathing for long. She's made the race, thank heavens. And there's a kind of tremendous, massive relief. And then the relief is to watch his last breath. 
one of the things I think that's remarkable is the way she gets all this feeling into the rush to get to the airport and to fly across the country to walk into her father's room for the last time. And so many people don't make it. Well, this is, you know, we, we both all know the heartbreak of racing to make it and making it. And we all, I'm afraid, know the heartbreak of sometimes racing and not making it or going and seeing the person and then leaving. And then the person, I mean, there's every, every version of this. If you live long enough, you get to see some people and you don't get to see others. Yeah. Oh my God. These are just tear jerkers. <laughs> every one of these poems this is this is true. I'm I'm glad you feel that, and I appreciate that. This is what I'm talking about. That we can talk about them as poems, but it's important to talk about them as human documents. I don't think it helps us to just talk about them as literary activities. These are really meaningful in terms of what people are writing about. Something's really at stra- at stake here. The skill in these poems is all meant for something human. It's not meant for its own sake. And I think literature professors have done us a disservice here by helping us think about literature. They teach us how to read, but they take it away from the people who've read it and why, why, and why they wrote it and why we'd want to read it. We don't want to read this because of all the devices in the poem, but the devices do serve the poem. And I think by talking about them, you can help explain the poem because what she does here is create the sense in every case of a race. So the poem really feels like it's one breath. It like rushes really fast as she goes through the airport um, because it's all she's on, you know, she's she's off and running. And and we follow that cinematically. Um, but we don't really, we, we appreciate the devices, but the devices are in service of the human. And I think that's what's meaningful to us about reading poetry. Right. And I think we also get our own experience somehow equated. Like I, I made this race and I did, I didn't make it. And you might read Barton Springs and know someone who swam while they have cancer, or you think about George Floyd when you read about James Byrd, that they, they have their own life in themselves that every reader, like anything you read, will take away their own personal moment from them as well. You're not going to have exactly the same experience that the poet has had, but you're going to recognize the minor of something that's really related. And that this is, I think, really meaningful. And what you're describing is, I believe, the role that the reader plays in in poetry. I mean, when I when I wrote How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry, the hero of that book is not the writer, but the reader. And that my argument throughout is that readers have an important part to play in poetry, that a poem is not really complete until someone reads it. And what you're pointing out is that you bring your own you bring your own experience to the reading of a poem. It's it, it's not necessary to pretend that experience doesn't exist. On the contrary, it's what enables you to understand it and to think about it and to feel it. And your own experience is not exactly the same, but it's often related. And often the poem helps you to articulate something that you've had trouble articulating in your own experience. And I think often when we're moved by poems, 
it's because there's some kind of recognition in them that we have felt something that we didn't know how to name ourselves. And the poem has given us a name for something that we didn't have. The first time this happened to me, I was in college and I read a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. And the poem was desolate, one of the so-called terrible sonnets. And I realized that Hopkins had created a poem that gave the feeling for something that I had, but I didn't know how to name. That I had some inner desolation that I couldn't articulate and that Hopkins had done that. And that seemed to me tremendously generous by him, that he'd been willing to use his own experience and articulate it in such a way so that so many years later, I could come along and find my own experience on the page and understand something about my own life. Is there anything else you want to say about this book before we get to the final questions? I think you've helped me articulate something, which is that when you read these sorrowful poems, you don't feel tremendously, you feel both sad and a little elated. You don't just feel upset. The poems are upsetting, and many of them are sorrowful. But my own experience of writing about these poems is you also feel elated that someone has articulated this, that someone has opened up something inside of you. So I, I believe that the experience is not of this book is not depressive. It is sorrowful. And these poems are heartbreaking, but they also companion you. They also help help you understand your own experience and they 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 move with you. And that I, because these poems have meant so much to me, I'm hoping that they can help other people, not just to read poems, to know about poems, but to live their lives. Well, I've never cried so much in an interview before. (laughs) These poems are doing what they're supposed to. (laughs) I guess. I guess so. (laughs) Um, Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? My, when I was eight years old, my grandfather died. And I knew my grandfather, it was the first real loss that I had, the first time someone had really died on me. And I really didn't know what to do with my feelings. And I, I went down to the basement. I knew my grandfather had written poetry in his books. And so I got home and, and I, I went to the basement and I saw these books and I opened an anthology. And in those days, the anthologies didn't have names for the poets. And so I read this poem and it was so meaningful to me because I thought my grandfather had written it. The night is darkening round me, the wild winds coldly blow, but a tyrant spell has bound me and I cannot, cannot go. The giant trees are bending, their bare boughs weighed with snow, and the storm is fast descending, and yet I cannot go. Clouds beyond clouds above me, wastes beyond wastes below, but nothing drear can move me. I will not, cannot go. This poem was tremendously meaningful to me as I started as as I thought of something from my grandfather. And as I started to write poetry, the sound of that, of someone who just would not let go 
um, who couldn't and who couldn't had to let go, but couldn't let go, um, in in some kind of in some kind of mournful way. Um, and I was in high school, and we had an anthology. I think I was a sophomore in high school, and I was started reading this poem, and I go, "Hold it, this this poet writes so much like my grandfather." Holy shit, it's my grandfather's poem, except it's by Emily Bronte. So, so I discovered that this poem that had been so meaningful to me had been written by Emily Bronte. Oddly enough, it didn't change the meaning of the poem. I just kind of got the author wrong. But it registered with me, the sound of it, the music of it, the split feeling of it. And I thought, I want to do something like that, partially because I thought my grandfather had written it. And then when I realized that Emily Brontë had, had written it, it didn't change my mind. It still thought, I want to try and make a sound like that. So I'd say it didn't inter influence me in a technical way, but in some kind of deeply spiritual way, because I was so young when I read it, that it had a just a tremendous impact on me as a person. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft, and then you can just tell us why. This is um, in a book-length poem that I wrote for my son Gabriel called Gabriel a Poem. And the whole, the whole poem is one poem, and the poem is an elegy for him. And towards the end, here's a section of it. I did not know the work of mourning is like carrying a bag of cement up a mountain at night. The mountaintop is not in sight because there is no mountaintop. Poor Sisyphus grief. I did not know I would struggle through a ragged underbrush without an upward path because there is no path. There's only a blunt rock with a river to fall into, time with its medieval chambers, time with its jagged edges and blunt instruments. I did not know the work of mourning is a labor in the dark we carry inside ourselves. Though sometimes when I sleep, I'm with him again, and then I wake. Poor Sisyphus grief, I am not ready for your heaviness cemented to my body. Look closely and you will see almost everyone carrying bags of cement on their shoulders. That's why it takes courage to get out of bed in the morning and climb into the day. The whole time I was trying to write my poem for Gabriel, which took me several years, telling his story, I mean, the book is a kind of one, in one sense, it's a biography of Gabriel. It tells his whole story in a poem. Another, it's a father's grief-stricken book of loss. It's from my point of view. The whole time that I was writing it, I was trying to figure out a way to let on that I understood that I wanted to honor what had happened to us and to tell Gabriel's story, which I considered sacred, but I wanted to also let everyone know or let the reader know that I'm aware that I'm not the only person that this ever happened to. I'm not the only one who suffered such a great loss. I'm not the only one who, who lost a son. 
And it seemed important to me to try and find something to say, to, to recognize that fact. But for the life of me, I did not know how to do it. I kept trying. Well, I had this phrase of Freud's in mind, the work of mourning. Um, and, I, and, and I thought mourning is work, but what kind of work? And I just, for more than a year, I kept thinking, well, maybe it will come to me. Maybe I'll know. Maybe, and I just couldn't think of it. I kept trying to think of what is the work of mourning? And I had many false starts. And then towards the end, it came to me that the work of mourning is like carrying an invisible bag of cement up a mountain at night. And then when I had that image, it came to me, which I had not occurred to me, well, this is like Sisyphus, but grief is a kind of Sisyphus. And that the reason that's invisible, the reason this mattered to me is that you realize when you walk along on the street and you see people that you sometimes think they haven't suffered a great loss, but that's really mostly because you don't know them. And it's mostly because some people carry themselves terrifically well and don't show it. But really, no one escapes. I mean, you may not lose a child, I hope you don't, but you will, if you live long enough, something terrible will happen to you. It is just the nature of life itself. You will lose someone who's precious to you. And I kept waiting that, for the gift to come to me of what that would look like. And then it did. And I was able to write, look closely and you will see almost everyone carrying bags of cement on their shoulders. And I believe that to be true. And then this is, I also believe to be true. That's why it takes courage to get out of bed in the morning and climb into the day. We don't even see it, but it takes courage to live ordinary life, to go on after you lose people who really have been tremendously meaningful to you. So this is a case I think where I struggled for more than a year with trying to find an image or a metaphor or something that would stand for the work of mourning. And I had many false starts. I'd really rather not share them with you um, until I got what I think seemed right to me. Where do you write? Well, that's changed during the pandemic. Um, I used to write in coffee shops quite a lot. I've always liked coffee shops. I've always liked the buzz um, of a bit of a bit of noise around and you're at your own table um, and you sort of set up. And I mean, I also have a study. I've always worked in my study. And but I mostly started poems in coffee shops and then finished them in my study working. But during the pandemic, that's changed. And um, now I mostly, I work in my study, but I take very long walks every day. And I sometimes stop on a park bench and write something down. And there's a, a line by the French poet, Paul Valere, where he says, my pace provokes my thoughts. And um, sometimes I find walking is very helpful to put you in the kind of reverie state that is necessary for the writing of poetry. So although now I don't write in coffee shops, I write entirely in a small bedroom in my partner's house in, um, in Atlanta, 
Um, I do take long walks and, 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 and sit on park benches and try to think about what I'm feeling. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, during the pandemic or the rest of the time? <laughs> Probably the rest of the time. Let's think positively. Um, it's, it's, I, I have a day job as the president of the Guggenheim Foundation in New York. And so it's easy for me to get away from writing because I have a lot to do um, in, terms of my, in terms of my day job. Um, but also I've always been a jock. And so I'm all through my, I don't play basketball anymore, but I used to. And one of the things I really liked about basketball, playing pickup basketball was, which I played all through my 40s, through my 30s and 40s, um, is that you can't think about anything else while you're playing. It's too fast. Um, and so you can't, you can't brood. Um, and I've always liked sports for that. And I, I still like what in normal times, I like to go to the gym. Um, and when you're working out, you just cannot think about writing too actively because you're, you know, you're breathing heavy and you're thinking about you have other stuff to do. Um, so that's always been, I've always liked sport for that reason, because of its, it, 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 it has a kind of intensity that forces you, to, it doesn't let you think about your problems. It forces you to think about other things. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I, I show it to my partner, Lori Wattel, and I have three really close friends in poetry um, who've been with me for a long time. They're the poets. One is a fiction writer mainly, but he also writes poetry named Charles Baxter. One is the poet Garrett Hongo, and one is the poet Michael Collier. And I mean, I don't show them rough drafts. I show them things that I think have finished already and then send them to them. And sometimes they have something to say. It's not always good. How have you dealt with rejection? I can't say it's always been great, um, but it is absolutely crucial. It's a good question because every single writer has to deal with rejection. And um, if, if, if you take it too hard, um, you will be defeated. And so what has been helpful to me in my life was to get rejected and then to vow to get better. Um, to, to, I always felt starting out that it was a club and they were going to try and keep me out. And that I just had to be, I had to do so well that they wouldn't be able to. That sort people like me weren't really in the club, but I wasn't going to let them keep me out of it because I was going to learn so much about poetry and write so much and write so well that they couldn't exclude me. I think the question is what you do with rejection and whether you, I mean, I, I think just pretending that everyone is just stupid when they reject you is maybe not necessarily the best thing, but that's really up to you. Sometimes they are stupid. Sometimes they don't have anything useful to say. When I was young, I was able to take rejection in stride. I'm not saying it didn't upset me, but I just vowed to get better. And, and so you take it seriously without letting it defeat you. I think if it defeats you, then um, you've lost. But I can't say that every time I've ever been rejected, I feel okay right away and think, oh, well, um, they're, they're right. I just have to get better. Sometimes I just go around cursing 
and feel really, really pissed off. But um, then you you gather yourself and try and get up. I mean, in you, everyone loses and everyone gets rejected and everyone has defeats. Um, I like something that Emerson says. Um, I am defeated all the time, yet to victory I am born. So that's my attitude. What is your favorite word? <laughs> yeah, I have no, I have, I have, I have no, I, I have no idea about 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 that. Um, I, I, I mean, I suppose it would be different on different days. I, I would say that today I, I like the word radiance. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you for such a moving response to the poems and for your perceptiveness, but mostly for your deep feeling. And, and I think that was really, that came through and it was very meaningful to me. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Edward Hirsch, editor of the Poetry Collection, 100 Poems to Break Your Heart. If you like today's show, check out my interview with poet Ada Lamone. We talked about her collection, Bright Dead Things. She gives advice on how readers can approach poetry, how this collection was her most personal, and the poetry of privacy. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts in keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Kevin McElvoy, Jennifer Steinorth, Grant Faulkner, and Ben Winters. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.